0: Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. The Bureau is dedicated to collecting and recollecting lost, half-remembered, or forgotten countercultural stories. You can find out more about what we do at bureauoflostculture.com. I am Stephen Coates, and I'm here with my comrade, Paul Hartfield. And today, I'd like to introduce our two guests. First of all, Dr. Sam Hart. Hello. And second of all, Hank Wangford. Hello. Sam, welcome. The reason that you are here is that you were one of maybe lesser known but very significant figures in the Soho countercultural scene. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we do, let's just back up the truck. Where are you from and how did you get to be practicing as a doctor in central London in the 60s? I was raised in Camden Town.
1: Um, actually raised in uh, a fantastic place called Regents Park Terrace, which is really flash, um, and whose houses are probably worth about fifteen million now. Um, and my parents were communists both my mum and dad serious communists my dad was on the uh, central committee of the british communist party and was the chief sub-editor of the daily worker and a newspaper designer uh, and became the president of the nuj as
0: well. i have to jump in there straight away is that that's a very interesting combination of communists and living in regents park terrace do you want to explain that uh yep um
1: i know it sounds like champagne socialists um when, he, when we moved into Regent's Park Terrace it was the late 40s and uh, he got the freehold to it for 5,000 quid in 1952. So it wasn't that expensive a property, but, I mean, it's just magnificent. Uh, uh, and I remember as a kid, our, our next-door neighbours were the Conrons, uh, and then there were all sorts of intellectuals. Regent's Park Terrace runs along a, a street called Oval Road, and then behind it is a crescent called Gloucester Crescent. Yeah, wonderful. And Gloucester yeah. Crescent, uh, well, Jonathan Miller, uh, whom we'll hear more about later, his his back garden butted onto our back garden and A.J. Eyre who was a famous uh, historian there were loads of inter- it was intellectuals mm. you know quite lefty um yeah the Camden sort of North London you know, Camden North London thing yeah yes. um so I guess my dad lucked out getting Regent's Park Terrace um but still stayed firmly uh, with the party and that's a whole other story in that um I was raised, therefore, in a communist family. Uh, my mum worked in the Soviet embassy teaching them English. And on, on the kitchen wall, we had a picture of Uncle Joe Stalin. Wow. wow. And because wow. the family was fairly unhappy and my mum had some affairs and uh, uh, she had an affair with a very handsome um, Soviet commander at the embassy. And I always remember when I was about four, <laughs> coming round to my mum saying, say hello to your, um, uh, your Uncle Pyotr. Oh, hello, Uncle Piotr. Oh, you're handsome. (laughs) 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 So
0: let's just jump in there, then. That's interesting, actually. Your mum was having an affair with her. So so that's something from the Cold War, isn't it? But when you say, um, I mean, apart from the fact that your parents were communists, did that actually affect the way that you were brought up? I mean, life in the house. Was there something communist about it? Oh,
1: yeah, because you were raised to think, as everybody is, there are good people and bad people in the world. But for me, the good people were Russians and communists. The bad people were Americans and capitalists. Oh, and Catholics thrown in as well because my mum came from Glasgow mm. and Glasgow is more sectarian than, than Northern Ireland, you know. Uh, and, and they weren't religious at all, but if you're not religious, you're Protestant in Glasgow. Yeah, You're only Catholic if you're Catholic. So I remember being up in Glasgow a lot and being with my Auntie Jean and her talking about the McCartneys next door who were Catholic, all except Bill, the the, the father, and talking about saying, oh, that Aggie, that we girl there, Aggie, well, she's a good enough girl for a Catholic, Mm. you know, and not meaning to put them down, but, you know, that was in the mix. Mm. So in the 50s, which was my teen years at school, you were very much an outsider, and you didn't want people to find out that you came from a communist family and they did find out and then you got beaten up. Yeah. I mean, I get beaten up because I was a a long, skinny geezer, so you're a long streak of piss, you
0: know. Yeah, but I mean, in the 50s, but being a communist, I mean, uh, was tantamount to sort of, you know, being some sort of traitor wasn't it really because
1: not so much uh, as under mccarthy in america yeah but, but you a, were definitely you know out there and, and 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 my mum and dad approved of me going in the cadet force why so i could learn to use a rifle for when the revolution came you know um
0: so it really was they were preparing for revolution they
1: well they were convinced it was going to happen mm. But they were very unhappy, and obviously my mum was unhappy. And, uh, and then uh, later she had an affair with one of Dad's colleagues on The Daily Worker, and that was a big scandal in the Communist Party. And, uh, and when Jim, my brother Jim, was born when I was uh, 11... Um, they they would normally have split up, you know. they got mm-hmm. divorced, but they stayed together. Not for the sake of the children,
0: for the sake, uh, of, for the the sake of the
1: party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that is good the, the party stuff, couldn't take it. it. Yeah, it's, right, it's, it's serious not. communist stuff. You, know, yeah. you have to stay together. The scandal so, will rock the party too much. Right, so, so you
0: came from a radical background, a radical London background, yeah. and so that actually that theme's gone through your life then, isn't it? So uh, yeah. you, went, you went to medical school? In went King? to medical school,
1: always still feeling a bit of an outsider. So there's certain stages in my life where uh, I always felt outside the mainstream, mm. and that kind of, I think, affected choices later. So that when I went to Cambridge uh, for university, um, I smoked my first spliff in Cambridge. Now, in 1960, to smoke a spliff was almost a political action. You know, it wasn't every day, it was like nothing now, you know, so what? But it was... Because
0: it was so rare to get it? It it? was
1: pretty rare, yeah. Um, I smoked my first spliff with a man called Pete Jenner, who uh, has become a very famous uh, manager? Manager of Pink Floyd. Uh, yeah. yeah, managed Pink Floyd, managed uh, Ian Dury, managed uh, Kevin
0: Ayers, Soft Machine, uh, The Clash. So you were right in there at the beginning. Then, so this is, when's this? This is 1960. This right? is 1960. Mm. Yeah, um,
1: and through the early 60s, then you become part of the alternative society. You qualified as a doctor. Qualified what? as a doctor. um well I finished Cambridge then I came down uh, because at that point you couldn't do your clinical work in Cambridge so I came down to St George's which was at that point in High Park Corner and by that point uh, I had been living in Soho for quite a while Uh, the first place I lived in Soho was Berwick Street number 17 over Borovic who were a kind of uh, fabric place Uh, and that and then I moved to Covent Garden to Longacre And that next place, and then the third place back in Soho, they were all hookers' flats. Mm.
0: It had been hookers before I moved in. Um, Describe Soho at that time then, Sam. I mean, like, um, you you know, we're in Soho right now. It's got a certain kind of characteristic to it. Lots of people say that, you know, the kind of, it's not what it was. But I mean, what was it like then?
1: Well, it wasn't as commercialised at all, you know, uh, but nothing was as commercialised, you know, things were how they were. So it was seedy, dirty. It was a red light district. Um, cheap? Cheap. Uh, cheap as chips. Um full of, you know, there, there, there were drugs because uh, all the junkies would go down to Boots to get their prescriptions, their heroin uh, and cocaine down at Boots in Piccadilly um,
0: Tell us about that, because that's quite interesting I mean, I know you get involved in that later on as well, but I mean um, this was a time when, you, if you were a junkie you could get a prescription, could you?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, you got, you got really pure heroin and pure cocaine. From Boots? Uh, from Boots yeah well, after a prescription by certain doctors who mm. would prescribe it. Um, and by this point, I was living in this wonderful place called Industry Buildings, uh, which is just behind where your other studio is in Broadwick Street. Um, uh, and it used to be a police section house was the building that we were behind. Industry Buildings now long gone and there's a car park there. But Ingestry Buildings was really interesting historically because that was built in the 19th century in Victorian times by an organisation called the Metropolitan Association for the Improvement of Dwellings for the Industrious Classes. And Dickens and Kingsley were on the board mm-hmm. as philanthropists uh, and Lord Ingestry uh, was obviously the man with the money. Um, and he was a big mate of Dickens, Kingsley, Christopher Wren, all sorts of people. No, no, he wasn't. That was way before. Um, and the point about industry buildings was, it was the first, and this is all pre-Peabody buildings. Uh, the first building of its kind for the industrious classes, for working class people, uh, with two lavatories in it, two water closets, because up to then you just threw your piss out of the window.
0: It's for two lavatories in the whole building. In the whole building, yeah, for you know
1: like seventy flats, mm. but you,
0: but they were there. Right. So this was a radical move and Which must have been a relief for the people on the pavement as well previously It previously have been ch- of the window. pavement for the,
1: You know, that's where just around the corner from where mm. Jon Snow discovered right. cholera mm, right. You know, mm. so no wonder there was cholera mm. around because there was piss and crap on, on, mm. on the streets and it was just, it was mm. filthy Now, not when I lived there mm. because we had water closets You had your own toilet you I had it, my yeah. own toilet, yeah. yeah, we had luxury right. um, And the place I lived in, in industry Buildings that was an actually it wasn't just a hooker it was a brothel Um, when they busted it uh, they watched it for three and in three hours 64 guys went in there and they had four girls working this place right and it was the rooms were about the size of this it was tiny place how they managed i don't know um anyway we moved in and i was there for about four years practicing as a doctor no that was i was still a medical student then so um and then i did my house job So when I was on duty at uh, at George's on High Park Corner, um, I was already a poser, so I had a white bicycle with a little red cross painted on the front. So I could actually be on call, uh, say to my mates, look, you know, if there's a cardiac arrest or something, you handle that, and say, yeah, sure, call me. I could get from the flat in Soho on the bike to High Park Corner in about six minutes. So I could be on call and get to the, the bedside in six, seven minutes wow. um, on my white bicycle. Um, <clears throat>
0: my white bike. Yeah.
1: And that was, that was important because of those times, and I can't believe it when I say it, but then, you know, you think now of how overworked a junior doctors are. But then the work schedule was you clock on Monday morning... Right? And you are then on call 24 hours a day until Friday afternoon of the following week. (laughs) So you are 12 days locked in there, on call, going completely potty, mm. making terrible mistakes because you are out of your mind mm. with... Fatigue, Fatigue. Yeah. Mm. And then Friday afternoon, you, you, you get away, so you come out and you go back home and you go completely mad for two days, and then Monday morning you clock back in. So no wonder I, I arranged times that I could just yeah. slip off for mm. a cup of tea with, with my wife and, mm. uh, uh, and, and kid... I had a little boy then
0: so you're living as a family in Soho working right. like a, a devil yeah. sleeping away yeah. like a devil for the NHS in yeah. down at St George's yeah. but, but but how did you how did you sort of you know migrate from that into what happened next I mean when you call I guess when you qualify because okay. then Before you
1: start, I answer that right. I'd like to point out that my boy who was born and I delivered him on Christmas Day in Hyde Park. It, on High Park Corner in George's, the gynaecologist allowed me to deliver him. Um, his middle name is Soho. Ah. So he's Matthew Soho Hutt. So that he'd have Matt if he wants to be straight, so he can be Matt Hutt and be straight. But if he really wanted to be wacky, he could be Soho Hutt. So, uh,
0: so you're, you're firmly embedded in this part of town. Oh, right? yeah. Then you qualify as a doctor yeah. and then... What happens next? Because you—that radical streak in you, which had sort of, you know, come maybe from your communist upbringing—it's sort of still there, isn't it? Actually, well,
1: it's there too, yes. And because uh, and the point about saying you started to spliff up in 1960 was. You did feel part of an, in quotes, alternative society. I mean, you know, we we got full of ourselves and it was very overblown. But you did think that, you know, you made terrible mistakes. You thought there's straight society and then there was us. And don't trust anybody who hasn't got long hair. That's the first mistake, you know. So you only trusted people with long hair. There was a lot of people with long hair who were very untrustworthy, you know. And equally, there were people with short hair who were trustworthy. So mm. Anyway, mm. Uh, you felt part of an alternative very, very much so. And then when acid came
0: along, you really felt like that. So when you say the, this alternative that you've felt part of, which we could call the underground the yeah. Cannes culture. Was that a specific London thing or was it that you felt in, connected to the people in America who were doing the same things? Was it, what, what, what was it? That you felt
1: connected with the people in America, you felt <clears> connected <throat> with the people on the continent, yeah. you felt connected with, you know, like the Paris uprisings, and right. the 1968 revolutions of student stuff. All of that you were
0: connected to. There was a, been some breakthrough of consciousness in some way in the late 50s and early 60s, with the beats. Yeah. And that that was just kind of... That's that's no. right that's right the beats so as it happened I met Burroughs
1: and Brian Gyson who were big beats people um, in 1961 when I first went to Morocco um, and I went to Tangier and spent some time in Tangier Yeah, Burroughs was uh, living right yeah that's right <clears throat> So I always loved the Borough's, one of his lines was, the true revolutionary wears a three-piece suit. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning you don't go round with mm. a Che Guevara t-shirt and stuff if you really want to be a revolutionary. You look absolutely straight.
0: Well, here's the thing of Lombra Invisible as well, the Invisible yeah, Man, wasn't it? Right. So when he lived in London, yeah. he lived in, in in St James. So you you feel part of this international counterculture, Yeah. even if it's a bit up itself, but you're part of that. Yeah. The weed smoking is part of it. And then acid comes to London.
1: Yes. And then that completely shakes you down. Um, Do you remember your first trip? Absolutely. Uh, because I took it with the man who was my best man when, when, when I got married. A little guy, also called Sam, very thoughtful. Uh, and we did it in a very um, reverential way. Um, so reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, Krishnamurti, uh, you know, preparing ourselves spiritually for about three, four days, uh, almost fasting you know, brown rice and uh, cleaning yourself out being meditative and thinking and this is in Kingston, here, you know um, outside London where he lived and then doing it in a very almost religious way, which was actually really good. I mean, I laugh at it because, again, it was a bit up itself, but it was a lovely way to do it Uh, and with somebody who had done it before and therefore you had somebody you could trust if the visions got a bit too harsh which they didn't it was absolutely glorious and it was that a whole thing that people talk about getting in touch with god one of the dangers of acid was that you would have visions that normally a hermit or a, a mystic would take 40 years to get to mm. you know and they'd that'd be 40 years of preparation yeah and you do this without any preparation so it's that fact that you, you open all the gates and whoosh, it all comes in, and you're not really ready for oh, it. Really? Particularly if you're doing it in a festival and you're surrounded by 100,000 other crazies, then you, know, you can really go potty, you can really have a bad trip.
0: Smashing grab-raban on, on enlightenment. These days, I th- yeah, we'll call it. But for me, it was wonderful. Mm. I absolutely loved it. It wouldn't be kind of like allowed in a way for a doctor to to be sort of experimenting with psychedelic drugs and that it you know I mean? it was a different time wasn't it well they might not talk about it okay but doctors are notorious drug mm. takers
1: you know the doctors were always taking the pills and the right. stuff that they had <laughs> apart from this this extraordinary sort of mushrooming in the in the late mm. 60s of mandrax mm. which was a sleeping pill uh, uh, stuff called methaquilone mm. which is very odd um uh, and uh, we all took it, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and luckily, it just got taken off the market because they realised it was being abused. And that was probably a great thing. It was called Quaaludes mm-hmm. in the States.
0: Um, so you for you, though, so it's actually, you take an acid, that's kind of opened up... You open up even further, so you mm. feel very much part of this kind of new consciousness, this new yeah. underground scene. Yeah. And then what do you do with that sort of knowledge, as it were? Did You, did you that you well, started to put that into practice as, you, as part of your medical work in a way.
1: Well, you right? don't consciously put it into practice, but you've had these experiences, and they will
0: affect your rela- relations with people, reactions with people. And you also started to work, actually work, you know, with people in the counterculture as well, didn't you? I mean, in the 60s, you became one of the doctors who was actually actively working with people. Uh, Absolutely.
1: Um, uh, And I joined up with a man called Ian Dunbar, who was uh, keen to help people off uh, heroin. He was interested in working with junkies. I wasn't that interested because it's a really hard job, you know, and you can't get anybody off heroin unless they want to get off heroin. You can kind of help them want to do it. But that's so with alcohol, that's so with all those uh, addictive drugs. You, the, you got, the person has got to want to do it, then you can help them. And he discovered at that time uh, that we still could prescribe cannabis in tincture form. This is pre-1972 when it then became uh, illegal for doctors to do that. And he gave uh, junkies cannabis and then all sorts of people cannabis. Um, Well, junkies, he'd give them the cannabis because it was something to get high. It doesn't replace heroin. It's nothing like heroin. Heroin is more like alcohol uh, than than like cannabis. This whole idea of cannabis being a gateway drug, well, it's a gateway drug because it's illegal. So it puts you in the drug world. Alcohol is not illegal, so it doesn't put you in the drug world. But you see so many people... So many people I've known, so many rock stars I've known who've kind of moved from smack uh, into alcohol, back to smack. Mm. alcohol. Because both smack and alcohol, you can get oblivion with both of those. You can't get oblivion with weed. Mm. It, it, it heightens things or makes you
0: stupid, uh, but you don't get oblivion. So, so prescribing, say, a tincture of cannabis, then mm-hmm. for you was not actually anything to do with like feeling into that kind of hunger. It was more actually, well, these people. This is this is something which is going to possibly help, right?
1: Well, it's partly that, but it was also, as I said earlier, you know, smoking a joint at that time was uh, was much more a political action. Mm-hmm. It was a radical action then, uh, than it is now. Um, I mean, it's much more sensible now because it's just it's smoking a joint. It's uh, I'm still convinced it's far less dangerous mm. than uh, than alcohol is. Um, the the whole skunk story is that's the classic thing of t- doing something unnatural, because however strong we would we would smoke and we'd get, I mean, fantastic Nepalese hash and uh, brilliant Thai sticks and all those, which are really strong, but it didn't have the psychotic
0: effect of of skunk right. at all. Um, so for so for you and also so. Prescribing that to people was also a radical act. Part it was a radical that, act. Political act right? It
1: was a political act. Yes, mm. for me, because I was one of the signatories. Um, the Beatles paid for that uh, famous or infamous full-page ad in the Times, which said uh, the law against marijuana is um, uh, immoral in principle and unworkable in practice. And they got about fifty people to sign it, including Watson and Crick, the Nobel Prize winners, you know, and all sorts of people. Um, and I was one of the signatories. Um, and I, I still believe it, you know, uh, that. So that by prescribing cannabis, because I could, uh, well, partly we weren't getting paid much by the NHS. We got our first paycheck after six months of doing a, uh, a, a general practice, a registered general practice on Labrick Grove uh, for £11.10. and And that's for three doctors for six months. So we did private prescriptions for two quid for... Cannabis and it was absolutely Israel. Police really didn't like us. We lasted just over 15 months, and the police found, uh, Oh, there's trouble with the drains in this building, got to close you down. Mm-hmm. They couldn't wait to close us down.
0: And you had presumably quite a big patient list, then.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Hey, we can go down to the doctor and we can get because you know, you come to see me, you tell me, amongst other things, you know, your worries and your anxieties is that you smoked dope. Well, you're a criminal. You know, so you've got all that anxiety on top of what other you need something for the anxiety that you are a criminal and you could be locked up. And I've been locked up. You know, nice middle-class people uh, or working-class people get locked up for weed. You know, crazy. Um, like so black can... guys getting locked up for weed it's crazy. Um, so, if I give it to you, you don't have to be illegal anymore. Phew. And, and you don't
0: feel anxious. And you don't feel anxious. That's a win-win situation.
1: Yeah. Mind you, have to be very careful with the, particularly the extract, which would like kind of psychedelic marmite. Um,
0: I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because right now, we're actually in this position. I mean, in the, i yeah, personally, regard the drug policy in this country as completely re- ludicrous, because ah, it's not based on harm. Mm. But I mean, and we're, we're in a position now when 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 medical cannabis is back on the menu, isn't it? It's just starting to be, you know. But what doctors so, will prescribe it? Very few at um, the moment. About but, three, you yeah, know, um, yeah. Yeah. But it's I mean, you, well, how many? Of the, how many of you were there in London? Was uh, doing, were there
1: were that? only the the three of us, right? And we we were the ones responsible for them to make it illegal.
0: We tipped the balance.
1: Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> Dang, dang <laughs> you! Goddamn you!
0: Wait, uh, so, uh, uh, so Sam, tell us about. So, tell us about. So, uh, apart from the uh, the the prescribing the uh, cannabis in tincture form, um, which actually we were talking to Jenny Fabian about, and she said it was. It, was not, it wasn't what you wanted it, it wasn't to be. It wasn't what you wanted yeah, it. You felt yeah. a bit woozy and dreamy and stuff it like that. It was heavy. So quite heavy. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, tell us about... So just, uh, the, the other big theme of your life, uh, uh, of course, is music, and um, we're going to come into that a lot more later, but already you're also involved with musicians in the music world yeah. as well. Tell us about that. a bit. About well, that. because we were,
1: you know, really, we, we were a hippie clinic, mm. you know? Um, and you could say anything you like because I was another hippie with hair down to my shoulders so that if you wanted to come in. Uh, and, and, and the same thing happened later when uh, we got closed down uh, and by that time I was living down in, in Exhibition Road with Jenny and with Roger Chapman, the lead singer with Family. Um, and that's where I went on practising <clears throat> while I went down the road uh, to study homeopathy as well um, because I was really interested in that. Uh, And my teacher was the Queen's homeopath, this wonderful old lady um, called Marjorie Blackie. Um, So she was down in South Ken. We were up in Exhibition Road and I was giving people homeopathic remedies. And if... Uh, but I was private. I had to be because I wasn't on the National Health then because we got chucked out. So I was very uncomfortable about So you that. got
0: kicked out of the National
1: Health? Well, the practice got closed okay. and I had no interest in working in a normal general practice. The great thing about that was we did what we liked. It was, it was a hippie clinic, you know, uh, partly for Ian to look after the junkies. And I, I looked after some junkies too. And we had, he'd stumbled across a method of coming off heroin which makes it incredibly easy. Um, Tell us. Um, I mean, not for, not when I no, no, one, no, but it, but I mean, it's, it's interesting ourselves. because it never penetrated medical thinking in a large way. It's, a, a, it's for travellers, Lomatil, right? it's a synthetic opiate, um, and basically a man called Yudkin, I think, who was a physiologist uh, and pharmacologist, discovered that if you took enormous doses of Lomatil, doesn't get high or anything but it replaces the opiate craving Hmm. so you would take somebody through five days of decreasing amounts of lomatil and they'd get through uh, their withdrawal from heroin without the snuffles the flu the shakes the aches the you know all the agony of coming off in cold turkey um, so, so Ian I, was pioneering that as a He was of, pioneering that so. and doing, uh, using that and then giving cannabis uh, for something to get half. Mm. Jenny was quite right. It wasn't right like smoking a spliff. Uh, you had to be very careful because you could OD very easily uh, if you eat it. Which is so, anyway, if you eat, if you eat dope, if you eat a, a brownie or something like that, you know, it's, it's not as easy to, to regulate regulate as, yeah, as, yeah. as when you're smoking. It. But the trouble with smoking is smoking is bad for your lungs. Mm. Da, da, da.
0: So you guys have got this, we've got this ra- radical hippie practice. Yeah. We get shut down, of course the authorities are yeah. going to hate that, right? So yeah, they close yeah. that down and you said that... Maybe so
1: I go on practicing uh, and because a lot of musicians came to see us for, for the thing, they followed me. So there I am in Montrose Court doing a private practice and a lot of rock stars would come to see me. for because, what? Well, for, you know, if they came to see me because they wanted up or downers, i say, sorry, mate, I'm not a grocer. You want to go and see the straight-looking guys who are in Wimpole Street or Harley Street with the three-piece suits. They'll give you loads of amphetamine. They'll give you loads of speed. They'll give you loads of downers, whatever you like. But me, I'm out of it. All I'm interested in is giving you healthy things. The only drug I'll give you is cannabis, you know, but the rest of it, or lomatil. To, to get you off heroin
0: Right, so the, the, the impression has sort of sneaked out that you, sort of, Dr. Sam Hart because you had this hippie clinic is that, you know, you can maybe go there and get some, something to kind of bend your mind but in fact you're actually not interested in that No, they're no, no, no I, was, I, was, the, the, I mean the, pri- the private practice on, on Wimpole Street or, uh, yeah, is where you can go and that. sort of yeah, write let, a check for 25 quid and they'll say, yeah, you need some slimming pills or something yeah, and yeah, yeah, So right. you're, you're homeopathic healthy treatments yeah. but people, you start to gather this uh, reputation for that, right? Yeah, you do. And um,
1: and people are very pleased mm. because the homeopathy fits in also with the kind of uh, the macrobiotic, the, mm. the healthy food, mm. the vegetarianism, the da-da-da, all that, you know. Wow, homeopathy, oh, wow, that's far out, man, mm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it was far out. I mean, I loved it. I loved it intellectually. Uh, I find a lot of it very difficult to, uh, to defend now because there's certain concepts in homeopathy which are... Pretty indefensible but the idea the basic idea of like curing like uh, was a really good and interesting thing mm. so now i was interested in I was a doctor i was interested in getting people well i was also disliked being a private doctor and i also loved the ancient chinese method which was that you have a doctor who you pay while you're well and as soon as you get ill, you stop paying the doctor until the doctor gets you better again. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. That's, the way. That's
0: the way. Instead of
1: pick. the American style, which is how's business? It's great. They're all as sick as hell. <laughs> Brilliant.
0: <laughs> you know? So you start to, I mean, you know, you become the rock and roll doctor in some yeah. ways, don't you, in the 60s and stuff. So tell us more about that. Then. And of course, you know, because, of course, you've also got this passion for music yourself. What sort of music were you listening to and loving at that time?
1: Well, I was, I was raised on sort of soul music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if we go back to the early times... Um, even when I was in Cambridge before I'd moved to Soho, uh, I was running a PX business, uh, which was buying cigarettes and alcohol from an American airman who would collect all the vouchers from his mates who didn't want their, their P- PX, their cheap. You know, you get 200 fags for, for a quid uh, and a 40 ounce bottle of vodka or bourbon uh, for a quid. Uh, and Gary would come there, charge me a quid for them, uh, and then I'd sell them to my mates for 30 bob, you know, so I had a good business going there, Uh, and he was very hip. He was mega-cool black airman uh, with an MG, and then come the weekend, we'd both go down to London and go to the Flamingo. And the Flamingo just was... just down the road. Just down the road. Uh, and it was the number one place for R&B. It was fantastic. And it would start at midnight. Uh, and you'd have two bands playing from midnight to six o'clock. So each band would play three one-hour sets... You know 12 to one, then the next band would come one to two, then you go back two to three, then if the I go three to four, then you go back four to five. And there were fantastic bands. It was the house bands were Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds, uh, Herbie Goins and the Nighttimers, and then you'd get guests to come in. I saw Solomon Burke there, who was unbelievable. But they were all unbelievable, it was fantastic music. And the audience was basically, like my mate Gary, was black American airmen, mm. you know, who'd come down. Uh, white women, a lot of whom were hookers. Uh, and then spotty Herberts like me, you know, white, young white guys who, who loved R&B, you know. That's Uh, strange timing for 12 till 6. That was a drug based thing, not an alcohol based thing. No, that was all based on speed. It it was great when regularly it was run by these two dodgy geezers, um, Jeff uh, Kruger, the Kruger brothers. Um, And suddenly, you know, in the middle of a song, one of the Krugers would come up on stage, grab the mic, stop the band playing, all right, lads, meet Vans outside, (laughs) stay cool, right? (laughs) And you'd hear this kind of. noise as everybody's dropping all their pills out their pockets onto the the ground. So all these amphetamines would go falling Mm. on the ground. And then this pathetic line of of uniformed policemen would come snaking through, going crunch, crunch, crunch on all the speed pills. And they'd they'd pick somebody at random, some sort of poor bugger, and and, and take him off. Mm. And then Kruger would come back and say, "Okay, you know, all right. (laughs) Back you go and, 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 and the go dealers out.
0: could pop out and say yeah. mm, oh yeah um, so that was early 60s so was. that was early yeah.
1: yeah that was early 60s mm. and that, it was fantastic music it was just wonderful music um, Solomon Burke oh, that was a little later he came about 64 huge I don't know if you've ever seen him big man I mean in his later years he, he, he had to sit on a throne on stage because mm. he couldn't stand up he was so fat <laughs> But when I saw him, he was just sort of... Very large. Very fat, but not not <laughs> sitting down fat. Um, and he he called himself the King of Rock and Soul. And he'd come on with a crown, right? An ermine-trimmed uh, purple cape, which he'd fling off and, and reveal he's wearing a salmon pink lurex suit <laughs> with emerald lurex lapels. I mean... You know fantastic and well. sweated like mad and i always remember he's he's up on stage and just doing the business with georgie fame backing him just brilliant and there's this little um black girl standing on the on the chairs behind me you might have to cut this standing on the chairs behind me just screaming at this great sort of wallowing blubbery geezer singing she's screaming fuck me fuck me fuck me <laughs> <laughs>
0: And did he? <laughs> uh,
1: who, who knows? Mate? Who knows? Who knows if
0: she got to him? So let's let's keep on that theme. So we've got we're in this heavy mix of drugs, sex, and music uh. in Soho and Central London, right? And you're as it were. A, a, to your elbows in it because you're also a gynecologist or did, that, did that come later?
1: No, that's uh, that's way later. Okay. Um, no, I, at that point I'm still. Mm. Uh, first, when I first went down, I was still a student, mm. uh, an undergrad at uh, mm. uh, Cambridge, and then I'm a medical student, so I'm mm. still going down to the, the Flamingo. I went up the Roaring Twenties a bit, but that wasn't my scene. It was it was the Flamingo, and then there was uh, the only the, the the third of the three all night places in the early sixties was Count Suckle's Q Club which was a sort of uh, uh, a pre-reggae, you know, a blue bean Mm. club up in Paddington. Mm.
0: Count Suckles Q Club. I've never heard of that. Yep, going to look it up. Um, So, you know, it's... It's amazing times, you know, and not just through rose-tinted glasses, because it is this kind of strange melting pot, isn't it? All this Mm. stuff happening at Mm. once. Very raw. It's all really raw, you know. And as we've talked before with various people, you know, Soho's a cheap place to live. It's pretty Mm. scuzzy. Nobody owned very much, but it didn't matter. You didn't really need to. And that was the kind of like perfect kind of breeding ground for this Mm. countercultural thing. And all the drugs coming from America and all that sort of stuff. It's all mixing up together, Mm. isn't it? In this kind of Mm. ferment of stuff. And then um, you start to hang out with people who became very famous rock stars. I mean, didn't you help deliver Keith Richards' baby? I didn't help deliver him. Um,
1: uh, I delivered my own baby. But mm-hmm. no, I, I helped Keith when he and Anita's little boy Marlon uh, was was poorly. You know, so they called me down, and I went and uh, I went and doctored him. You know, that was fine. Uh, And Pete Townsend, uh, and at that point, because I knew Pete, um, and I'd done some doctoring for him, again nothing to do with drugs, because and and I was really quite puritanical about that. The only drug that I would give you would be cannabis, uh, and everything else, it's got it's just medicine. I'm not here to do the rest of it. And and
0: and, and then also doing music. Didn't you start to write and record in the sixties? I think we're going to hear. Well, I
1: did, and I was because of my involvement with Pete Jenner. I was going to do a Sid Barrett song, right? A song for Sid Barrett? No, one of Sid's songs. I was going to do a cover of one of Sid's songs. But that never happened. And at that point, I was setting a lot of Lewis Carroll poems Mm. to music because the words I was writing were pretty rubbish. My lyrics were very, very bad and I, I can say that uh, and then there, there's these wonderful mad poems that Lewis Carroll wrote I mean really potty but fitted perfectly into the counterculture because they are all kind of hallucinatory and weird and you, you wonder did he have a bite of that mushroom you know what what was Lewis up to mm, mm, mm. apart from ogling Alice in a very non-PC way mm. um, So they fitted perfectly, things like Jabberwock which dreamed it so I set music to all these different poems so we decided to do Jabberwock uh, and Pete facilitated that uh, and because he had been looking after Mark Bolan uh, uh, and he knew Tony Visconti uh, Tony Visconti came and was the producer and we went in with a band called Junior's Eyes uh, and recorded these two tracks I
0: think we should hear one of them, here we go
1: Beware wear the channel walk, my son, the jaws, the bite, the claws, that catch. the catch. Beware wear the chop job and shot, the, the fluvius band has matched with leg. And the slithy toasted did gyre and gimble in the way, or mimsy were the borough groves and the moan out grey. Beware we the jabberwock, my son the jaws, the bite the claws, the catch. Beware we the chop bird and shark, the plumiest man the snatch. As in our fish thought he stood, the Jabberwock, with eyes of
0: flame, came whiffling
1: through the tolgy wood, and burbled as it came. Beware, the
0: Jabberwock, my son the jaws that bite, the claws that catch.
1: Beware,
0: the chop-chop bird and shark, the plumiest man Two, one, two, and through and through His purple blade went snick He left it
1: dead and with its head he came Clumping back glum, 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 glum. Where the chapel walk my the jaws That bite the catch Where
0: the chop-chop bird and shark, The band That's the Jabberwock, Boeing Devine and the Beautiful Soup. You know, for listeners, there's a picture of Sam on the back of this, from the uh, seven-inch single, and he's looking f- well cool. He's um, sitting sort of cross-legged. I think he's got a pair of velvet pantaloons on and a Paisley shirt and a wicked moustache. <laughs> and he's mainly he's playing a sitar.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and this has been voted uh, Sam. You said one of the Top 100
1: psychedelic singles it of all time. It is one of the top 100 psychedelic singles of all time,
0: yeah. So were you tempted at that point, thinking, oh, I mean, I'm going to give up this medical stuff, I'm just going to go for full-on psychedelic pop stardom?
1: I did. I There was another band called the Third Ear Band, yep. who were seriously wacky. They were kind of a cross between Floyd and... Um, uh, oh, um, Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. What, 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 um, oh, what, what were they very very organic um it'll come back to me uh, another group anyway third ear band i did a i did a gig at the royal festival hall playing sitar with the third ear band oh, wow. so you were a with, proper sitar with, 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 mm. with john peel introducing mm. yourself a self, t- self-taught
0: leader. sitar player yeah. was it? no were... i
1: studied with a wonderful man called Im- imrat khan uh, Imrat Khan was the younger brother of Vilayat Khan, and Vilayat Khan was the greatest sitar player. He 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 was really the king. Ravi Shankar was a, a great sitar player, but he was the handsome boy who uh, became the kind of uh, the star with the counterculture. He, mm-hmm. he he was the good-looking guy who went out there uh, and fathered. Um, nora,
0: nora. nora. nora? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah of course you mentioned uh, barrett and pete jenner there earlier do you remember which barrett song it was you were thinking of covering out of interest i was a mouse in a mm, house. bike yeah. Bike, yeah. bike yeah um there was another side to all this wasn't there there's was another side to the kind of the beautiful summer of love psychedelia the happiness And all that stuff, which was epitomised in some way by Barrett, wasn't it? And Mm. other people, who the dark underside of it, where it was all starting to go a bit wrong. Mm. I mean, you must have also been dealing as a doctor with some of that, were you?
1: Well, um, because I was big mates, uh, I was the Pink Floyd's doctor, Mm. you know, uh, because I'd qualified by that time. Um, And there was a a time when I I was living down in Formentera. Of Ibiza, mm. um, I sort of swung between Ibiza and Formentera and I had a finca in Formentera And Sid came down, Sid and Roger came down for a couple of weeks with the idea from Pete and Andrew that it would be a kind of a rest cure with me. But Sid was at the height of the craziness, and he, you know, there were times where he was literally climbing up the wall, really, and just just going crazy. And I was there at their last. Um, at his last recording session with Floyd where he recorded Vegetable Man um, and Jug Band Blues, which were both pretty psychotic, you know. In my pink shirt, I feel like a jerk and that's why I am Vegetable Man. <laughs> and a real cry for her, and it was... <clears throat> It was awful. So, when he came to see, to
0: see you, and you, you, you were sort of taking a sabbatical in Formentera, were you? And, yeah, and well, he, at
1: that point, I was, I, I'd i work for a bit and then I'd go down yeah. uh, for six months and just live in Formentera and think and play and play right. my sitar.
0: Play your sitar? That's heavenly. Yes, so That's so, great. <laughs> so, Rick Wright and Barrett came over with the idea that you, in some way, with your medical. Yeah, they health, thought they would help, could, but could... no, no,
1: it didn't. Sid, you know, Sid was very sensitive, fantastically good looking. Mm. Really pretty boy, but really sensitive. And he did just, he he chucked it down himself. He he, he took acid every day for at least two years. Now, to be in that world it, day after day after mm. day after day after day, yeah, that's too much, that's crazy stuff. Yeah. So I'm not at all surprised that he did fall off the edge.
0: You couldn't help him.
1: No, no, he, he was too far gone then. And he could couldn't cope with, the, couldn't the, cope with, with yeah, the, the commercial side, mm. which people like Roger were much stronger. Mm. You know, they could do it. You know, uh, Rick Wright kind mm. of hung on with it. Mm. And, um, and Nick
0: played the drums.
1: You know. <laughs> he just bashed the drums. Did you
0: ever see him again after Foreman Terror, Sid?
1: Yeah. Um, a couple of times, but then not. Not mm. after he went back to Cambridge and never mm. saw his kind of transmogrification into, you know, a, a, a fat, bald man. Mm. From this this Adonis, uh, Adonis, this pretty boy. Would there have been? Would you known if there were mental health issues before the drugs, or did you see anything that was? No, just a set you know, an over Well, over yeah. value judgment, but as very sensitive. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, personality issues rather than mental health issues, okay. but. Uh, kind of incipient stuff there which you can understand that doing that amount of acid is just not a good idea. Mm-hmm.
0: It's probably time um, that we hear another tune and that tune is called To Stubborn People. Mm-hmm.
1: Stop, you say go. I say yes, you say no. Two stubborn people, too much in love to say goodbye. You blame me, I blame you. We're so busy blaming, we can't see that we're through. We're up. Uh, Too stubborn people Too much in love To say goodbye We're so foolish Hanging on We can see that Love is gone Won't admit our time is through Cause I love me and you Love is blind, that's for sure Even when love lies bleeding on the floor We're too stubborn people Too much in love to say goodbye We keep on living out the lie Too much in
0: love to say goodbye That was Two Stubborn People, recorded here live today at Soho Radio with a certain Hank Wangford who we're going to speak to now. Hank, tell um, us about that tune. That tune, Two Stubborn People. Well,
1: um, I was playing that on an instrument called a baritone ukulele, um, which when I got it, I was very pleased I got it. I got it in Maui because my son lives in California, my, my first son. Uh, so they can go over to Hawaii quite easily. So I went over with him once. Uh, and I got this baritone uke because he'd already got me a tenor uke, which I've worked on for a long time. Um, and I fell out of love with the baritone uke because it was kind of... It's halfway in between a guitar and a ukulele, and I, I sort of felt like it's it was n- a nowhere instrument it's lovely though it, it is lovely oh, so now I, you told, I, now I told me I earlier know.
0: that it actually writes songs for you it, i'm it gonna write rent songs it for me. you
1: well you write songs on the piano mostly mm-hmm. if i write songs on the piano they come out really
0: quite slow uh, and quite hippie um so what i do mine do too but they put them into the computer and i just turn the tempo up oh well, there you go Is it that easy? It's that That easy. But no, the observant listener may have thinking, God, Hank Wangford sounds exactly like Sam Hart. Well, well spotted, because of course, Hank Wangford and Sam Hart share the same body. We do share the same crumbling body, indeed. Sam Hart, doctor, rock and roll doctor, you know, recording music, part of the music scene, part of the countercultural scene has always got this love of music and then something happened in Well something happened in 69
1: yes, Mm -hmm. was that uh, of all the rock stars or music stars that came to me um, uh, a man called Graham Parsons who has become a bit of a god to uh, the country and country rock community um, came up with his wife his wife was poorly and, and he wanted me to see her and he'd been hanging around with Keith Richards taking industrial quantities of heroin Um, and because Graham was a poor little rich boy he had, and Keith always said Graham had better quality heroin than I ever got hold of Um, so they were big brothers in arms they loved it Uh, and Graham turned Keith on to country music so all those songs like um, Honky Tonk Women uh, Dear Doctor uh, Dead Flowers they're all country songs essentially um, so Keith got really turned on to country like that. Um, and because I'd seen Keith's son Marlon as a baby, um, Keith sent Graham up to me. So uh, I'm in uh, the flat I'm sharing with Jenny Fabian and Roger Chapman. On the record player, I'm playing a guy called Fred Neal. Now, Fred Neal was um, a guitar player, folk, Folky, who hung around... Uh, uh, the, the village in New York had this lovely baritone voice uh, and is known for two songs that became famous. One is called The Dolphins, and Fred Neil was one of those people who was, you know, out there. You know, very few people knew Fred Neil. Now, Stephen, you must have known people. Uh, or had somebody you really liked and then if you met somebody else who knew this person it'd be a mixture of emotions yeah. you'd be happy oh mm. you know Fred Neil too mm. and it'd also be kind of mine. Get, he's mine get yeah. off my turf yeah. you know? of course, yeah, yeah. so Graham comes in uh, Freddie Neil's playing on the, and, and Graham's first words were hey that's Freddie Neil I say how do you know Freddie Neil he said well I played with him <laughs> you played with Fred Neil he said well I said what's your name He says, Grand Parsons. I go, Jesus Christ. So you knew who Grand Parsons was? Oh, yeah, because I was, at that point, uh, I was beginning to listen to the Flying Burrito Brothers Mm. who fooled us into thinking that they were a rock and roll uh, mentality but they were playing real country music. Now, before that, when Graham joined a band called The Birds and they came out with what is now a classic album called Sweetheart of the Rodeo, Mm -hmm. I thought it was crap. I hated Sweetheart of the Rodeo. What's all this country rubbish? Because remember you were a rock and roll I, I was R&B mm-hmm. you know yeah. Ray Charles was my first big hero you know and then it all went into Otis and all that what, what, what is this country stuff and I loved the birds and I loved their harmonies and the previous album they'd done before that was called Younger Than Yesterday <laughs> right so seriously psychedelic with lots of backwards tapes and sort of acid kind of sounds and everything and then suddenly there's this country rubbish uh, so I didn't appreciate Graham on that at all. But when they came out with Frying Burrito Brothers, it did have this aura of rock and mm. rollness to And of course,
0: it. he looked. Oh, he looked fantastic, Another gorgeous sort of... Adonis they had these nudie
1: things. suits. Nudie was the guy who, who dressed all the country stars, yeah. uh, but with rhinestones on all the suits. But instead of wagon wheels and cowboy images, he had marijuana leaves and pills and acid pills and stuff all, all over
0: it. You know? So he did, what can, can you remember what he looked like when he walked into your flat in an um, exhibition?
1: Uh, he was wearing um, uh, probably an extremely expensive buckskin jacket, fringed buckskin jacket and he was a good looking boy mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. did you do for him well i did i i just uh, looked after his wife mm-hmm. who had a, a minor problem and, and that wasn't a problem but during all that he then picked up after the how do you know fred neil he picked up my guitar and sang this song um which is a george jones song uh, which goes the jukebox is playing A honky-tonk song, one more I keep saying, and then I'll go home. What good will it do me? I know what I'll find. An empty bottle, a broken heart, and you're still on my mind. You know, which is deep honky-tonk misery and as soon as i heard that that was my road to damascus that was my conversion i could see there's soul in that music it isn't the rubbish i thought it was and it's-
0: also i've got grandpa sitting in my living room playing <laughs> yeah, it to me doing uh, it. playing it to me yeah, yeah
1: uh, and and that was it mm-hmm. and so then we knew each other for a good few months uh, he went back to America and then he came back and he was going to produce an album that I was going to do with him and Rick Gretch who had been with Family the bass player with Family um, and then was with um, Blind Faith uh, but unfortunately Rick was in the arms of Smack as well and uh, we went out to his house and Graham and he just sort of disappeared off into sort of heroin dreams and I was very much an outsider for yeah, that right. and so the album never happened right. but we had a lot of time with him singing me songs and it was, it, he was really my, my teacher mm. uh, because he loved
0: George Jones mm. uh, that was my first love in country. Yeah. Just a little aside where, where are they getting the heroin from I mean you know someone like Grand Parsons comes over he's, he's not even a local I mean you, how did he do it? He was supplying them with all that stuff
1: If you're in that world you find out I don't know how because I'm not Mm. a junkie Mm. but you find out Mm. you find out pretty
0: quickly I mean Keith Richards has survived it hasn't he but I mean there's not that many people with access to that kind of money and that kind of drugs that did survive it Grant Parsons obviously didn't he didn't know and there were
1: various times that I was called over to see him uh, and he'd be turning blue you know or have a a needle hanging out of his Mm. his arm and and you know on the way out and I managed to get there in time to give him nalophene give him the mm. antidote to keep him breathing and bring him back but in the end yes in Joshua Tree he, he managed to take downers and alcohol and heroin and that did for him
0: but well, skipping back to, to you and you come from R&B mm-hmm. psychedelic music now you've been turned on to uh, country country soul let's put it that way mm. how did you somehow, as was, turn into Hank Wankford?
1: How did I turn into Hank? Well, it was a simple story. It was um, my girlfriend that I adored um, wanted to have kids and I didn't want to have kids. So then one day it turns out um, I I, I go to America to see uh, my ex-wife and see Matt, see my son who's been raised in America. Uh, and um, Lindsay comes over for 10 days while I'm there uh, and presents me with a kind of ultimatum. Are you sure you don't want to have kids? Yeah, I'm sure I don't have kids. So she goes back home. When I get back to England, I find she's gone and married my flatmate. Uh, because he obviously said, yeah, sure, we'll have kids. Uh, so That's quick. as far as I was concerned, mm. the you know, the, the world is a bastard and the, the mm-hmm. them bastards have stabbed me in the back and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm suffering and, and the world is a bad place and it's all done it to me, which is a kind of human thing that you do. Of but, of course, it's wrong. They didn't do it to you. You, you did. Did it to you? you. Of course, we'll you did. You had put that construct. So um, I'm sitting in a in a pub in a place called Wangford, uh, in in Suffolk, and I'm staring at my pint, thinking, you know, oh, the world, it's all against me. Oh, bloody bastards! Oh no! And and I'm raising my pint, and I suddenly think, Hank Wangford, what a great name for the ultimate wanker. what a great name for somebody who thinks that the world has done him in and he blames it all on the world and he can't see that it's him Hank Wankford, great, so I tell all my mates a month later uh, the Bungie May Horse Fair which is a mixture of hippies uh, travelling folk, Diddy Coy's dogs, horses, you know um, I'm going up on stage uh, as Hank Wainford saying, how can I get on stage with a name as monumentally stupid as Hank Wainford? But I did with with a couple of Can Can girls as backing singers um, and a drummer no bass player, no nothing else um, and there's a bass player in the audience who then joined and then we formed a band
0: And What year? 76 I think it's time that we hear a a Hank Wankford song another one recorded earlier in Soho Studios
1: perfect day sky is blue all set up for an I love you but something's missing that's something is you You decided The other day To break it up Throw it all away Now something's missing That something is you You made something Have nothing on The day that we met You filled my heart with fire, something I will never forget The way you put that fire out only shows That nothing is forever and anything goes Day's still perfect, sky's still blue I'm still perfectly lonesome too Something's missing that something is you trombone solo You made something. Nothing on the day that we met You filled my heart with fire Something I will never forget The way you put that fire out Only shows that nothing is forever And anything goes Now, day's still perfect Sky's still blue I'm still perfectly lonesome too Something's missing That something is you That something is you That something is you
0: Perfect day, Hank. Talk Perfect day. That. Yeah, well, that's
1: that's uh, one of, like... Um, uh like two stubborn people that's two of the songs from the new album so they're still being done Uh, we haven't finished the album yet but it should be out in the autumn Uh, we've pretty much done it we just got a couple of things and then we can mix
0: it all and hank's had an illustrious recording career with many albums and tours all over the place and actually in some ways sam hut really came into his own didn't he with becoming hank wankford I mean, Sam Hupp's still there and you carried on on practising as a doctor, a gynecologist and all that stuff. But you really found it, didn't you? Well, I found it with country and with Hank, Mm -hmm. yeah. What's quite interesting as well is, is that you have still got this radical thing going on, haven't you? Because actually, during the 80s, didn't you get involved with the whole kind of political... Musical, yeah. political response to Margaret Thatcher and, and, and all that stuff. You became part of that as well, didn't you? Well? Yeah, and Red Wedge. Red Wedge, and, and, right. So and, and
1: Bi- well, well, Billy was part of... Billy Bragg. Pete, yeah, Billy Bragg was part of Pete Jenner's stable. Uh, and so we played together. We recorded some songs together. Um... And yeah, sure. Well, you know, coming from a communist background, I may never have joined the Communist Party because of that whole sort of madness of my, my unhappy family staying together for the five years of my teens uh, when they should have split up long
0: before. Uh, th- of course, I'm a lefty. Thanks very much, Hank Wangford and Dr. Sam Hart.
1: a time I was a dreamer Once upon a time Thought fairy tales come true Then you crashed into my life, smashed into my heart, trashed into my dreams Left the fairies telling tales on you song Once upon a time Thought we'd
0: That was Once Upon a Time by Hank Wankford. You can find out more about Hank and his music at hankwankford.com. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can find out more about us and listen to other strange, half-remembered, half-forgotten countercultural stories at bureauoflostculture.com.